Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we celebrate the rise of talented female authors in the fantasy genre, with Samantha Shannon and Tashi Suri, who are changing the landscape and drawing new audiences. Recorded at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode, they discuss the key influences behind their work, the importance of strong female protagonists, and what they wish they'd known before starting out. real quick um, we will be leaving time for questions at the end about 15 minutes so as I'm asking them questions if anything sticks out that you want to know more about dig deeper into or something that I don't cover um, by all means feel free to ask then um, but without further ado you guys know I love battle scenes we talk about this all the time and we know that you don't love them but you still write them so could you talk to me about um, how and why you put your women in these very physical, visceral conflicts, even though you don't like to write them, um, and also maybe how you go about doing that process like as a craft point? Yeah, why do you do that, Samantha? Um, <laughs> thank you, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I very famously uh, don't like battle scenes. I don't like action scenes. I would actually prefer it if all of my characters could just gaze at each other and have very deep conversations. Um, really, I should probably be writing the screenplays. Um, but yeah, so I, I did find myself writing books that involve battles. And uh, the Bone Season series is a kind of uh, dystopia, like an epic dystopia. So the main character is constantly getting herself into various awful situations that she has to action her way out of. And then the Roots of Chaos books, are they have much bigger epic battles. And they're the ones I really can't stand because I don't <laughs> know anything about epic battles. Um, I'm not a strategist. So I, one of my tactics is that I will just read about historical battles and I will essentially copy what they did <laughs> so, because I know that that worked. Um, so there's a couple of battles in A Day of Fallen Night where there's a battle that takes place on the ice and that was inspired by a real battle where these warriors were lured onto the ice and they didn't know they were standing on ice so half the army fell through it. Um, and then, yeah, so that's one of my tactics. Um, just trying to think if I have any specific things other than just sitting there crying when I'm doing it. Um, yeah, Tasha, I, I'm still thinking. Um, you, you go with yours. <laughs> I, I do the same thing, though. Um, so... In, uh, I, I like battle scenes if they are one-to-one -one, mm. because I think that can be really fun because they're very intimate. Um, I think it's a lot like writing, um, let's say, flirtation scenes to keep it PG because it's about the way that people physically interact with each other in a way that's charged with vulnerability, potentially manipulation, potentially you know, power dynamics. And I think that can be really fun to write because it's like the most raw emotion and character interaction you can put on the page. Um, so people joke about like knife to the throat scenes. I love those. They're so much fun. Um, what I struggle with is big epic battles. Mm. They suck. <laughs> I don't understand how people make them like meaningful. Um, but I had to do those in the second book of the Jasmine Throne, um, where there are various large battles. And I was like, I don't know what to do to make this interesting. So I stole a real battle. I, I think I stole one of Alexander the Great. Yeah. Um, Ooh, involving ambitious. a river. Well, I was like, well, if he did it, it probably works. So, um, so I took one pitched river battle that happened in apparently in India and used that. Oh. Um, 
I added some magic in, but it was, it was still him. You mean that wasn't part of his original battle plan? That wasn't part of the strategy? No, no. Ooh. But I definitely did read about battles where magic was considered to be part of the battle strategy, mm. where they would like do horoscopes or star signs or talk with soothsayers and go, this is definitely going to work. They were often wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you could argue that in real history, there was some element of magic because belief played such a large part. That is fascinating to yep. know, especially about, if you guys have read this scene, then you probably know what you're talking about. Just thinking about that scene in light of that is really... Yeah, my, that said, like, I think the scene turned out really well, but even to the very last second, my editor was like, how could this be happening over there and that character be able to see it? And I went, I, I don't know. I, I guess we're just going to have to suspend our disbelief this once. Just once uh, while there are vines flying vines, out of Vines, giant earth. tidal waves, okay, cool. you know. Yeah. So then... What makes you want to put these characters in those positions? Is it just like the plot needed a battle, so this is where we are? Is that it? Or is there something you're interested in exploring? Or, or not? It doesn't have to be. Um, I mean, I, I really like pushing my characters into very extreme situations because I think that that kind of pressure can bring out interesting sides of them. And that's one of the reasons I like writing dystopian fiction is because the characters are constantly in this pressure cooker. And I find it interesting to, you know, it's... One thing to have characters who are just in a relatively normal, relaxed situation talking, that can show things about them, but it shows a totally different side of them if their life is in constant danger. Um, I do it in the Bone Season series as well because my main character, Paige, um, I will be going into this more in the series, but she has a form of survivor's guilt and it's given her an extremely uh, reckless personality where she see, everyone always accuses her of having a death wish. And I think that putting her into these circumstances and making her take these huge risks is, is a massive part of who she is as a person. Um, in the Roots of Chaos books, I, well, I, I set out to write a, a war novel, which, why did I do that <laughs> if I hate writing battle scenes? Um, and I thought it would be quite an interesting challenge to write battles between dragons and humans, um, because how on earth do humans defeat dragons? What are the ways you can do that? It's, it's almost impossible. Um, so I, I liked the, the challenge of showing that. Um, the dragons in my books are kind of forces of nature in, like in, in a very literal sense. They're born from an imbalance in nature. So I like showing the destruction that they can cause in, in a similar way to something like a tornado it would cause damage. So that's, that's why I showed these battle scenes. But I do find them immensely difficult. Um, and I, d I don't quite know why I keep putting myself through it. So I, <laughs> and I'm going to be writing books with battle scenes and action for quite a few years yet. Um, I'm quite looking forward to my Greek goddess retelling because I'm intending that to be relatively sedate, even though it's set during the Trojan War. But I'm somehow going to write about that Trojan War without <laughs> talking about the war. <laughs> or I can just take the battle tactics from Homer, actually, so that's helpful. Okay. I mean, you mentioned the, the intimacy thing, so I can give you a pass on that, mm -hmm. but I am going to make you start with the next question then. Okay. Um, so, as Tasha said, I also kind of believe that battle scenes or at least intimate fight scenes and relation scenes um, are two sides of definitely the same coin. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask next was how did you choose, especially with these books, um, like lauded as part of the new fantasy sapphic canon, how did you decide where and when and how uh, to show desire, especially desire between women in these books? Hmm. How did I decide when to show desire? Do you know, I don't know if I ever made a conscious decision. <laughs> um, I, I knew that I wanted to have a romance, so I put the, the beats off, like, um, 
let's say emotional vulnerability or, oh my God, I like her, or, oh no, I like her, um, in exactly the same place as I would in a straight romance, mm -hmm. um, which I do quite instinctually because I read a lot of romance. So I'm like, this is where it goes. And I just sort of put it in. Yeah. I, I realize that's not a great answer in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I mentioned the knife to the throat scene, didn't I? So Every novel must have yeah. a knife to the throat scene. Got it. Yeah, okay. yeah, no, that's important, I think. I, I also think it's really fun to kind of portray um, desire and vulnerability around, like, big plot points. That's one of the great things about fantasy, right? That you can go, here's this intimate connection between two people. Great. What if there were dragons? Um, <laughs> or in my case, what if there were... Um, what if there's war between this empire and this small colonized nation? And what if all the various siblings who could run the empire start fighting each other? And also, what if some very creepy plant gods are coming back? Um, lesbians, that's the, <laughs> kind of the approach. Um, so I like to kind of take those moments of intimacy and combine them with big, tragic, or fascinating, to me, plot points. Um, and what I really like about that is that I think we've seen a lot of straight fiction that allows people, allows its characters to have epic stories, right? Where their love changes the world. And of course, we've always had queer fiction that does that, but it's nice to be part of the canon that's doing that, and I think we can all kind of agree on that point mm -hmm. to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, well, I remember the thing that led me to writing The Priory of the Orange Tree as a lesbian romance, which was I wanted to base it on the Elizabethan era because I, generally speaking, fantasy is often based on the Middle Ages, um, but I was quite interested. I loved the aesthetic of the Elizabethan era. I think there was a lot of really interesting global politics in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, I just wanted them to wear ruffs as well. That's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> the number of times you mentioned March pain and clothes. March pain, Marzipan. Yeah. Um, and, but no, I literally had to go. There's a, there's a website called <laughs> Dressing Cecily where I had to learn how to layer Elizabethan clothes because there are so many layers. So you get this little doll called Cecily. And if you put the outfit on in the like wrong a, a order... a real doll or a mine? It's like a sort of a, a digital doll. Oh, okay. And you're putting the layers on it. So you put your, like the shift and then the petticoat. And if you put something on in the wrong order, she's like, pray, put my petticoat on before my farthingale. <laughs> <laughs> but I did get it. I, I got it. In the end. It's really hard. Um, but yes, yeah, so I was reading about um, the Elizabethan era. And <laughs> you can try it. It's fun. Um, but yeah, so I was, um, I was looking up the Elizabethan era and I, I read this book called Elizabeth's Bedfellows by Anna Whitelock. And I was really interested in the intimacy between women and the Elizabethan court because during Henry VIII's court, the, the Tudor court was extremely masculine. You know, it was all about hunting and Henry VIII being terribly handsome and him still being convinced he was handsome years after he wasn't handsome. Um, and when Elizabeth came to power, she obviously had to have a much more female court because the ladies around her were the ones who were seeing her in a kind of vulnerable state, especially during the later years of her life when Elizabeth had to really put forward this very different impression of how she looked with you know, the red wig and the white face paint and all that sort of thing. The ladies were the ones who saw her without that. They saw her as she truly was. And often in that era, um, for warmth and companionship, uh, the queen would share a bed with one of her ladies, which was very common in the era, even among you know, ordinary people. Um, and I was reading about this, and it was very, very you know, strongly put forward that this was very straight. <laughs> and I said, doesn't sound like it. <laughs> so I decided that would be a an interesting uh, beginning to uh, a sapphic relationship. It was going to be about um, a queen and one of her bedfellows. And 
Uh, I ended up weaving that into the story I was already telling, which was a, a feminist reimagining of the legend of George and the Dragon. And George and the Dragon is... Uh, I've, I've written an entire essay about this. I'll try to condense it. But it is a, a very patriarchal story. It's, it's quite a... It has quite toxic roots in various ways. It's, it's, quite, it's not only patriarchal, but very xenophobic and very kind of anti-anyone that isn't a white Christian male, essentially. And I felt like having a relationship between two women in that retelling was quite a powerful thing to do. It just felt like a, a good way to deconstruct the patriarchal narrative of the knight who claims the damsel. So Ede, one of the two women in the romance, she often has kind of classic heroes moments um, that would normally go to a man in fiction. So there's a scene where she's, for example, tempted by the beautiful femme fatale, which is something that would normally happen to someone like Sir Garwin, but I decided to keep Ede as a woman in those scenes, and that was really fun. Bedfellows. <laughs> Elizabeth Bedfellows, check it out. <laughs> no, actually, what I'm more interested in is probably I'm going to go home and I'm going to play with little Cecily and her, her petticoats. It is quite fun. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... I grew up in the era of fantasy books, and maybe some of you all can agree, where there's always like some prophecy at the very, very like beginning, front pages of the book, or they're revealed to us shortly after the book starts. And then we like read the entire like 10 book series to figure out how this prophecy plays out. And both of you all have some kind of prophecy or prophetic leaning or like destiny involved in your book. So I'm thinking um, Malini's, um, prophecy and the entire glory and line um, for both of you guys. Like, can you talk about what interested you in exploring these narratives or anything interesting you found in making a sort of faded narrative? I, I went last time. <laughs> 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 I've just banged on about Cecily for 10 minutes. <laughs> no, but I'm interested in hearing about the Barathnet line. I think it'll be, okay, I'll go. I'll okay. go, but then you go. That's how this goes. That's how it <laughs> Okay, um, prophecies. So in um, the Jasmine Throne, uh, we <laughs> stuff happens. Um, there's a character called Raoul, and his. And I remember when I was talking to my editor about him very early in the process. I said, "This is what his name is, but it's a silly name because it's not a name; it's a surname." And I was like, mm, "Maybe it's not his real name. Maybe he has a secret name because um, a lot of the kids I grew up with." Um, you would get your name from um, the Granthi or the Bandit, uh, the priest, you know, by your star sign. So you'd get the first letter and then your name would be decided accordingly, which my parents didn't do with me. So I was like, your star signs or when you're born define your fate in a lot of ways. They decide whether you are, for example, Munglik, which means like you have a ill stars and your first husband will die is the way my grandma described it. Um, so you have to marry a tree first or something. Mm -hmm. um, so... <laughs> I mean, that have a, a tie-in later as well to the, the fact that you made... The Yaxa. Yeah, and I also put that story in. There's like, um, yeah, I did. Um, okay, we'll come back to that. Yeah, so, um, so star signs are very important. So I thought, okay, let's have this group of characters or people whose names are prophecies. So you get your prophecy at birth. Um, and then you use um, a different name to live by. So Rao is called Rao because he's a prince, and it means he's a prince. And his sister was called Alori because she was from Alor. But that wasn't their real names. Um, so he's carrying around this prophecy for most of the first book. Spoilers. Um, and we don't know what it is, but we know it has something to do with a princess who's the center of the story called Marlene, who tried to overthrow her despotic brother and ends up imprisoned in a ruin of a temple in a colonized nation and told that she will either die there, essentially of being drugged, um, or she will choose to burn because that is the only way she can maintain her honor. Um, 
So all of this draws from my own cultural background, which is Indian and largely Hindu, with a bit of Sikh on the side for flavor. Um, and she, uh, so we know the prophecies about her, but we eventually do get the prophecy. And without saying what it is, there are different ways that you could interpret it. And Marlene, particularly, who's a bit of a Machiavellian character, I think it's fair to say, is very conscious that faith belief and prophecy and stories that we tell about powerful people can be used as weapons, both against us and by us. So in many ways, you can decide whether the prophecy is true or not, and it kind of doesn't matter. What the most important thing is, is the way it can be used politically and for power. And I think that pretty much covers it. No, that makes absolute sense in general and also for mm -hmm. her. So, yeah, we'll come back to that. So the Barethnets. So um, the Berethnets in the world of the Priory of the Orange Tree, they are a line of queens who all look uh, precisely identical to each other, which is a bit disturbing when you have like four of them alive at the same time because they literally all look exactly the same. Um, and they, have, they basically believe that they must continue the bloodline of their distant ancestor, Sir Gallian Berethnet, who's my St. George figure. And Segalian claimed that as long as his bloodline endured, there would be a massive fire-breathing dragon held at bay. The second that the Brethnet line ends and his legacy ends, the big fire-breathing dragon will be unleashed upon the world and will destroy it. This is quite a heavy burden to place on a 16-year-old girl, which is what happens in A Day of Fallen Night to Princess Glorian. Um, and I was interested in how, essentially, to keep a society functioning, we have to tell half of the population that they must keep giving birth to the next generation. And you can see what happens when the birth rates drop, for example. You see this enormous panic comes, and there's all of these conversations about, you know, women need to be having more children and all that kind of thing. And as someone who's chosen not to have children myself, you know, out of, out of choice, um, I've always found those kind of conversations very interesting and disturbing. And I thought it would be fascinating to look at a very extreme form of um, hereditary monarchy, where each of the, this is the other catch, the Berethnic queens only have one child each, always a daughter. So they cannot pass the, the, the act of having children onto any siblings. It must always be the princess who has just been born. She is immediately like betrothed to someone and she knows that she must get married and have children. She has no choice in the matter. Um, and I just thought it would be very interesting to explore that kind of structural patriarchy. And the other thing I find interesting is the fact that traditionally uh, women have taken men's surnames um, because it's considered that the men want to pass their legacy down to the children, even though the women are the ones who are generally giving birth to the children. Um, and that was, that was something also that interested me. So I have Sir Gallian, who is the, the beginning of this chain, but then he has all of these queens as his descendants who are all carrying his legacy, all having children just to continue his legacy and his prophecy, which actually turns out to have been a lie, unsurprisingly. Um, and I was, I was just very interested in that, and I was fascinated by especially a character like Glorian, who doesn't want to get married and have children. It's completely against her nature, but she ends up being kind of coerced into it because she is essentially told this lie all her life, and she, just, she doesn't have the ability to to get around it, and then she has to pass the burden on to her own daughter, Sabran. So it was a, actually a very tragic arc to follow in this book. Um, I, it was probably the one that I was most kind of deeply upset writing because of how it is just this huge strain and pressure to have children, and it's something I've also experienced myself in a, a much less dramatic way. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really interesting to hear about both of you guys' interpretations of like prophecy and fate, because one of the things I like the most with these fantasy prophecies wasn't following the series to see what actually happened and how it lived up to, but was seeing how each character tried to thwart the prophecy, whether it came around to bite them or whether it ended up being made true in an entirely different way. Um, cool. So we talked a little bit about this with the tree marriage, just mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, so one of the things that you guys have both done in common as well is having a magic that is bound to the natural world more so than it is bound to like one individual's like internal power. Um, so we've got the Aksa and we've got the orange trees. Um, so like what was, tell us, tell us a bit more about your decisions to root <laughs> magic in the natural world as opposed to individual people or I don't know. Do, do you know why you did it? Yeah. I, you do know why you did it. <laughs> Maybe we should... Oh, the lights have changed um, very suddenly. Yes. Um, so I think we should start with you then, in that case. You I'll, I'll have a think about it. Um, so, well, I, at the, the, it started with when I was looking into the legend of St. George. Um, I looked up various different versions of it, and the main version that I wanted to challenge because I found it to be the most unpleasant version of the story um, was something called The Famous History of the Seven Champions of Christendom by an Elizabethan writer called uh, Richard Johnson. And in his version of the story, um, George fights the dragon in Egypt. And while he is doing this, uh, he comes across an enchanted orange tree. And the orange tree not only protects him from the dragon's fire, but when he eats of its fruit, he is restored and renewed, and he has the strength to continue fighting the dragon. And I really wanted to bring elements of the George narrative into Priory, so I decided that it would be really interesting to look at, you know, why would an orange tree protect a man from a dragon? Um, and also, because I wanted to challenge um, the patriarchal elements of the legend, I decided it would be interesting to build, essentially, a house of female warriors around this orange tree. And the whole magic system really stemmed <laughs> from there. And um, so I ended up, I, I liked the idea of a kind of magic system. So it's a mix of inherited magic, but also you can take it for yourself. So if you have the blood of someone who is eaten from one of these trees, which are called the seeden trees, and they bring up fire magic from the core of the world. And if you have the blood of someone who's eaten one of these before, uh, who, who becomes a mage, then the tree will yield you its fruit willingly because it recognizes you. However, you could still decide to climb the tree and take it for yourself. Um, and I, I, I'm interested in kind of inherited magic because I think it's like the idea of inheriting that burden and what you do with it. And there is a character called See You in A Day of Fallen Night who pulls against that inheritance. You know, she doesn't want to be a mage. She wants to go out into the world and abandon the orange tree. Um, but then I also like the idea of just being able to take magic if you're, if you're kind of enterprising enough. Um, and that's essentially what kind of the early people who ate from the trees did. They just decided to take it for themselves. Um, and yeah, I, a lot of people have asked me if I feel like the Roots of Chaos series are sort of about global warming or clifires, it's sometimes called. Um, and I don't know that I necessarily would say it's about global warming, but the dragons and the trees, they're, they're certainly about the balance of nature and how, how vulnerable we are to the natural world and how we should respect and revere it. 
I wanted to make like a really cheesy joke, like that's a really juicy magic system or something. <laughs> Keep going. No, 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 but you no. did it so smoothly. No, no, no. no, no. I've done it now. I know. It. I, I know. Can't I know. Stop me. Um, okay, just you're 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 through now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, as you may have guessed, I'm not necessarily um, somebody who analytically thinks through a magic system when I create it. I really go on vibes. Um, but I, I think Ursula Le Guin, I'm trying to make myself sound much more sensible here now, and um, Neil Gaiman have talked about the fact that often as a writer you have a lot of like, they didn't phrase it like this, a lot of garbage that just lives in your head and swims around, and then occasionally you pick it up and you find something golden in it. So I, a lot of what I say about my magic system is me looking backwards and saying I can see where this came from, but I wouldn't know it when I came up with it at the time. So... The, the world of Parajadvipa, which is where the Jasmine Throne is set, is an Indian-inspired world, and I thought it didn't make much sense to have just one religion in, in that world because there would be multiple religions. India has many religions. so um, I think that meant that I broadly drew on not different religions but different imagery um, that I'd grown up with and used them to create different faiths. Mm -hmm. So you have um, the religion that Rao is from of the nameless god, who believe that there is um, a god that you can commune with um, who is nameless and arguably genderless and will give you prophecies and visions which may come at a high cost. Um, and there is um, the religion of the Mothers of Flame where they believe that in the Age of Flowers, which is when these nature spirits called the Yaksa based on the Yaksha, um, who are a real mythological concept, um, ruled the world, um, these group of women came together and sacrificed themselves, willingly burned alive, and saved everybody. And that religion, therefore, puts a lot of faith in fire and in the burning of women, which is really cheerful. Um, and then you have the Yaksa faith, which is the one, which is the center of the story in a lot of ways, um, where this one particular country were led by these nature spirits um, who were at times malevolent and at times beautiful. So we have stories like the tree marriage where there was a person who fell in love with, um, who garlanded a tree which turned into a person because it was a yaksa and they got married. Um, there were many things good and many things bad about that particular faith. But what I really enjoyed about writing that one is that you have a character, Priya, who is a temple child. So she was born into that faith and raised to become a priestess, essentially. And she always recognize that unlike the other two faiths which espouse sacrifice and oneness with a nameless god, hers was about hollowing yourself and about proving your strength. So in order to get power in her particular faith, even as a child, you have to go through a rite of immersion in these deathless waters, they're called, and if you were strong enough, you will survive. If you were not strong enough, you will die. So you can only have power and magic if you are strong enough, and that isn't about blood, or background, it's about strength. And that is also, nonetheless, a very toxic way of viewing power. So, good fun, all around. <laughs> I mean, it's the toxicity that makes it interesting to it's explore. If it was just happy magic, then we would all have it and it wouldn't be a problem. All right, so uh, since we're talking about um, mostly the women so far, um, you guys both do have a few fan favorites, dudes, little soft boys. Um, <laughs> Everybody loves them, so could you talk, us, talk to us a little bit about like Wolf and Ralph, and, and more, and more, but they are my personal favorites. Yeah, I think Wolf, <laughs> Wolf does keep being referred to as my soft boy. It's because uh, he's perfect. He, he's very sweet. Yeah. Um, so I, I read the funniest thing once, and it was something like, oh, 
Samantha Shannon books, you know what you're getting. You get like five incredible strong female characters and you get one little guy who's just sad 24-7. <laughs> I think the term was something like some sad little loser. <laughs> and I mean, in Priory you have two sad boys. One I is have, older yes. and one is younger. I have Nick Lays, who is a 64-year-old uh, alchemist who is mourning the loss of his dead love. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed writing Nobody would call him a soft boy. No, I'm no, sorry. He's, no, no, no. He's, he's a pain in the butt. That's no, what he's, he is. He's, he's yeah. the guy who shouts at you to get off the lawn, 100%. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he's sad about it, so... He's okay. very sad about it, but he's, he's, he's a grumpy, sad guy. Um, I mean, I actually had a great time writing him. He's, he's definitely one of my least popular characters. I was actually quite taken aback by the, uh, the level of uh, anger towards Nicolay's, actually. Um, for me, he was a lot of fun. Uh, and then there was, there's Loth, who uh, is uh, a nobleman who is sent on an adventure for which he is entirely unprepared. And that was great fun because Loth is a very courteous, um, compassionate man. And it was very important to me, actually, that he kept his compassion throughout the, the story. Because often when characters go on a long journey, like part of their arc is that they become much colder and harder. And I think Loth certainly becomes wiser. You know, he's quite a naive character at the beginning, and he's also very um, quite short-sighted in terms of he thinks his faith is the only faith. But he becomes more open-minded and compassionate by the end. But he, he doesn't lose his essential compassion, which was, was important to me. Um, Wolf, uh, who is the, the only male narrator of the eight narrators in A Day of Fall and Night, um, but he does seem to be a lot of people's favourite, which I thought was quite funny. Um, so Wolf is a young knight uh, who works for King Bard Holt of Hroth, uh, which is a very uh, kind of Viking-esque, uh, snowy northern country. And Wolf was actually, he was very much inspired by a lot of the reading I did at university. And his, his story is the most like a fairy tale of all of the characters, I think. So... Wolf was um, abandoned as a child in these kind of cursed woods, and the woods are associated with the, the sort of pagan days of the country that he's, that he's found in Innis. And so he has this suspicion hanging over him, this sense that he might be connected in some way to the, the witch of these woods, the lady of the woods. Um, and that was inspired... Uh, partly by kind of fairy tales that often connect children with the woods, like Babes in the Wood, for example, um, or Hansel and Gretel, even. Um, but also uh, Old English and Old Norse sagas. So uh, one of the works he was inspired by was a, a, a riddle that I studied at university uh, called Wolf and Eardwatcher. And it's, it's a very, very tricky riddle. Like, no one really understands what it's about. Um, it's a female speaker who's talking about the loss of either a male relative or a lover who has been sent into exile on another island. Um, and it talks about how he's kind of being hunted and how they can't be together. And it's a, a kind of a poem about grief and loss and longing. And I, it, it, not only did it give... Wolf his name, this riddle, but I very much drew a lot of elements from this into it. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of kind of old English work that talks about kind of the loss of a king and the grief that comes with when a knight no longer has a king to serve. And so, yeah, Wolf's narrative was very much inspired by all of those things. So I, I, he's kind of my ode to my love of old English um, literature and also my love of language in some ways. So Wolf is supposed to come from the, the northern kind of regions of Innis and 
because he's also from the North, which I based, um, I, I based the language sort of on Old Norse, um, I ended up drawing a lot of Scots into his dialect because um, I felt like that was appropriate. Scots is quite coloured by the, the Norse invasion of England. And I just, I just had a lot of fun with his language. I just used a lot. I, I really like playing with um, sort of dialects and with archaic vocabulary as well to kind of broaden my knowledge of English. And I felt like Wolf was an, an ode to that. He also mm. put him through so much pain. Like, yeah, he's, he's <laughs> so much. He doesn't have a very good time, Wolf. No, no he has an awful time. Like, every yeah. time you think he's going to get a break, it's like, no, something Thank worse you, is yeah. about to happen. No, he's falling into the sea and nearly dying. He's getting burned and nearly dying. He's, 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 all his friends are dead. Like that little, All his friends are dead. The little, um, you should get him a T-shirt. This dinosaur. is all my friends are dead yeah. and all I got was this lousy yeah, T-shirt. No, that's yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's Wolf. He yeah. has, like, one friend left by the end. Yeah. <laughs> I love him. Spoiler though. alert. Anyway, this is what happens to authors' favorite characters. Yes. Imagine what happens to the ones they don't like. Nothing. <laughs> just leave them alone. We don't care whether they suffer yeah, or not, yeah. we don't care about them. <laughs> okay, your turn. Yeah, so um, Rao could also say all my friends are dead, to be fair. He could. Um, and I still haven't sorted out my sexuality would be his subtitle. Um, but <laughs> So a good way um, to think of the Jasmine Throne is that I... I wanted to write an epic fantasy, you know, in the kind of tradition of things like, you know, Game of Thrones, arguably. Um, and all the men in my book could, in a different book, be the main characters. There's no reason they wouldn't be. So um, we have a governor of this um, colonized nation. He is one of the colonizing people, but he isn't a high-born man, so he has risen to this position by merit. He's not the protagonist. His, his much younger pregnant wife is. Um, we have, you know, a rebel against the imperial power who will do anything to stop it. He's not the hero. His, his very grumpy sister is. Um, we have um, a prince who gave up his throne to become a priest because he heard a vision from the nameless god, um, leaving it in the hands of his despotic brother. He's not the hero. His imprisoned sister is. So all of these men could, in a different book, be protagonists or antagonists, and they're not exactly, um, because they are secondary to the female characters. And that was an intentional choice. Um, I think of all of them, Rao is the one that could have been a hero of a book, right? In a different book, he'd be the hero, because he, um, his sister is burned, and he watches it happen. Um, and he learns just before it happens that she knew this was going to happen to her. It was her prophecy. So he has very complicated feelings about his faith. Um, and then he decides on the basis of, of the prophecy, he's not telling us that he's going to go try and save Princess Marlene from her fate. And then proceeds to do a really bad job at it um, with his good friends um, as they live in a brothel. Um, and his friends are lovely. His, all his friends are dead. Um, but, and, and I really love him because he's, he's a very gentle, earnest character who's always trying to do the right thing and doesn't quite know who he is and has a complicated relationship with his faith. So he is, you know, the quintessential soft boy. I'm very fond of him, but I, I do treat him very badly. Yeah, you um, do. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has a whole storyline, I think, that I, I don't know if you kind of picked up on, like, trying to find, on discovering his sexuality in the most traumatic way possible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, every time... No, I can't say it because it's a spoiler. No, yeah. It? Yeah, it doesn't go well for Anyways, him. Anyways, you guys should definitely read this part of the yeah. book. It's a really good ride. But don't. What? Anyway, so next question. <laughs> huh. Speaking of like uh, kind of where you were mm -hmm. going with the writing the character point of view that is not exactly in power, but like right next to, adjacent mm -hmm. to power. I was interested in 
why you guys chose those like not central but just slide off uh, positions like we obviously have Glorian who is queen um, but we also have instead of having um, 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 Esbar as the main protagonist for the Priory sort of sections we have Tunuva 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 yeah. we have Tunuva um, and then we have obviously we do have Malini as a point of view but we also have adjacent to her, Priya. And mm -hmm. not, Priya is not any kind of royal, exactly. She's not, she kind of has leader-like aspects, but she doesn't lead a host or a country. I mean, she's a maid. Like, she, right. she cleans. That's her thing. Yeah. Well, and she only has, like, magic powers, but yeah, anyway, know, but she's not in charge backstory. of anyone. Yeah. So, what did you guys learn by about leadership and power by writing these kinds of characters, as opposed to their, like, politically powerful counterpart. I always enjoy talking about this because originally Esbar was supposed to be the, the narrator for the South sections. Mm -hmm. um, so Esbar is, when I set out to write A Day of Fallen Night, because it's a, it's a prequel to the Priory of the Orange Tree that's set 500 years before, and I really wanted there to be some connections to the original cast because I knew that a lot of readers had liked the original characters, and I I wanted to give them a sense of connection. So Esbar is the ancestor of Eid, who is one of the narrators from the first book. And Esbar just gives off huge protagonist vibes. You know, she's the heir to the priory. Um, she's very bold and determined and a little bit sassy. And she's just, she just is, she gives main character energy for me. And I, there is a scene at the beginning in the prologue that is told from Esbar's perspective, where she's giving birth to her daughter, Siu. And during that scene, I knew that Esbar was going to have been in a relationship for a really long time. And so I have her talk about her partner, Tanuva. And the second I wrote Tanuva, I had the, the strangest reaction. I, I just immediately knew that she was both the happiest and the saddest character who I'd ever written, who was incredibly loving and had some kind of secret that she was wrestling with. And it just as soon as she walked into my head, I knew all of those things. And... I thought to myself, wouldn't it be more interesting to explore Esbar from Tanuva's perspective? Like, what is it like to be the partner of the person who is or should be the protagonist or who mm. appears to be the protagonist? So Esbar is reaching for the position of prioress of the orange tree. Now, Tanuva doesn't want that at all. Tanuva's not an ambitious person. She is someone who is very competent and very confident in that competence. That was hard to say. Um, but she doesn't like to... There, there's a whole scene, for example, where she's very, very skilled with a spear, Tanuva, um, and mm -hmm. she knows this. But there's a scene where she remembers dueling with one of her sisters, and she did that as in sort of nun-type sisters, and she does not particularly need to beat people or show off. Like, she doesn't want to show off to what she considers to be, you know, her family. Um, and then she shocks everyone when she does decide to, to teach the other woman a lesson and she beats her. Um, and, but that is who Tanuva is. She very much hides that part of herself. She doesn't need to show off or be ambitious. And she sometimes describes, I think at one point she describes Esbar as being like a sun and that she's a moon that can only reflect Esbar's light. And other people don't see her like that. You know, they see her as her, her own whole self. And she, she kind of, her story grows separately from Esbar's as the story goes on. But originally, she's really just all about supporting the characters around her. Like, she supports Siu as a kind of mother figure. She supports Esbar as a partner. And she and Esbar have been together for 30 years. So it's kind of, it's almost a bit of a shock to Esbar when suddenly Tanuva wants something that's not just 
about supporting her. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was really fascinating to explore. Like, it, I really enjoyed writing their relationship. It was, just, it was wonderful to have two characters who had known each other for half a century and who've been in a relationship for 30 years. And I, just, I hadn't got to really experience that before, and it was, it was just such a, a joy to write. I love her. She's lovely. I love to meet her. She's my favorite. Yeah. She's my favorite. I love the spear scene. The spear scene was awesome. The spear scene was fun. Nikaya is my favorite, and we haven't talked about her at all. Nikaya is actually also kind of a character who's adjacent to power in some ways because um, the, the. I can't even really talk about Do My Story without spoilers. No, it's it's spoilers all the way down. Yeah, Yeah. but um, Nikaya is a character who decides to get close to power, and basically her family. Um, instead of usurping the, the imperial line, they have decided to kind of attach themselves to the imperial line through marriage. And this was actually based on a situation in ancient Japan where there was a family who essentially completely monopolized Japanese politics for several centuries, um, but not usurping the crown. They just very cleverly intermarried with the imperial line. Mm-hmm. And it meant that the, the emperors always had to respect these families because often these, the family members were their father-in-laws or you know, they were very, very close to them. Um, and I was, just, I was very interested in that. Like They just don't feel the need to usurp because they don't need to. They've already got all the power. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think... One thing I find very interesting about power is often we have a very kind of straight-up sense of what power is. You know, we say a king is powerful, right? Um, And I found it very interesting looking at historical records about, for example, the Mughal period in India, that a lot of um, commentators in the West would sort of say, oh, the the emperor did this and he did that. And, you know, also we had all these wives who were veiled and, you know, hidden and didn't do anything. But when you actually look at the record, a lot of those, you know, those apparently, you know, um, victimized women, as they were often described, had huge power. They had um, fleets. They had their own income. They had more rights in terms of wealth and independence than a lot of European royal women did at the same time, um, to compare, you know, apples for apples, so women of that status. And some of them were not even powers behind the throne. They, they ruled their husband, at least one husband was pretty feckless. I can't remember which <laughs> one um, it was, Noor Jahan's husband. And, um, and they had immense power. And there was one particular fight for um, a Mughal throne where a sister, uh, Jahanara Begum, was basically interceding with her brothers to stop a bloodbath. She didn't succeed, but she did maintain her own power throughout this whole situation. And I thought, you know, we don't talk a lot about women's power in those scenarios. What we often talk about is them being conniving and manipulative. I read a biography of Shah Jahan, which was talking about how all these women were just taking advantage of him and being awful. And I was like, oh, you know, yeah, so they don't have a sword in their hands, so they're conniving? You know, come on now. We can, we can get beyond that. Mm-hmm. Which is a long way of saying, um, I think power is complicated, and it's much more interesting to explore how people use power when they are not the person who is apparently in charge. So the wife of a governor is an interesting figure because she is, mm-hmm. you know, a noblewoman. Bumika is a character I really love. Um, and she's a noblewoman from this colonized nation. She is much younger than her husband. She is pretty and demure and, you know, does as she's told. And she's clearly very good at reading his moods and doing what is necessary. Um, but she uses her position to do things like fund rebellion and to try and stop any bloodbath from happening and interceding with the rebel leader who was actually her temple brother. Um, and, I, and I think power in those scenarios is much more interesting because it's always on a knife edge, right? It could always go wrong at any point. Um, so I find that much more fun to work with. 
I like how you had Bumika being judged for that as well by yeah. her fellow countrymen, because like you say, I, I find it very frustrating when you know historians describe concubines, for example, as being conniving, because it's suggesting that women had any other options at the time. Yeah. Women were not mm -hmm. allowed to go and fight in the field. So, of course, they were using the power behind the throne because they weren't allowed the power on the throne. And I've, I've always found that really annoying. There's a, there's a, yeah, there's an interaction she has with her. So, Umika and Priya are both temple children. They, in the story of their world, they were meant to die. They were, they were sentenced essentially to execution by their own religious leaders and a few children survived, and they're all hidden. And one of them is one of our main characters, Priya, who's a maidservant, one of them is Bumika, who's married to the governor, and one is Ashok, who is the rebel leader. And he has a confrontation with Bumika because they're the closest together in age, where he's like, you, you know, you're essentially, you're literally sleeping with the enemy. You've got into bed with him, you've, you know, you've sold yourself. And she says, is that any different from what you've done? Because he has to essentially take this um, poison in order to have the power that he has. And she says there's no real difference between us. Now, whether there is or not is, is a question that the reader has to answer for themselves. But I think the point is that they both make decisions that are in some ways good, in some ways bad, for what they believe is the right thing. And why would we judge Bumika more harshly than Ashok in that scenario? And I think that's something to kind of sit with. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm definitely a card-carrying member of Team Bumika. <laughs> Um, I but that. I wanted to turn this out to you all. Um, do we have any questions to um, our lovely panelists? Yeah. We've got a mic coming around. Um, I'm also an aspiring author, hopefully trying to write a book. And whenever I like try and make a magic system, it's always too complex and like too intense. So like, what's a way of just making it, you know? strictly what you want it to be and nothing like over a magic system did you say magic yeah system. a magic system magic systems keep coming out a bit too complex is there a way to make it i think i i would definitely set limits to it i think that that can be a problem with magic systems because if you're not precisely sure what the limits are number one it can just grow out of control and also there's the matter of stakes because you need to know, in most novels, you know, when the characters are in danger. If you have the kind of magic system where literally anything can happen and magic can solve it, it means that there are not particularly high stakes. So you know, you'll have a character fall off a cliff and out of nowhere, a kind of magic we've never heard about stops them from, <laughs> from dying. And that's fine if it's been established, but there should be, I think, limits to it. And that, that will help just box the magic system and keep it a little bit neater, I think. I think it's, you can ask yourself some simple questions. I, I clearly just go on vibes and then I retroactively fix it. So that's, <laughs> I think, a perfectly acceptable thing to do. But I think you can say, you know, what does the magic do? That's the first question. Just one thing. What does it do? So does it make fire? Does it, you know, does it draw, is it stars, for example? What does it do? How do you do it? That's the next question. Um, so I had one book where... The magic was the dreams of gods, and it can reshape the world. How do you do it? You dance. So <laughs> essentially, that was the approach. Um, and what are, the, what are the dangers of it? What is the price you have to pay to use it? Now, you don't necessarily have to make a magic system where there's a price, but it's more fun if you do. So, you know, for example, if you use too much of this magic, will it drain your life and kill you? That's interesting because it creates peril. Um, if you use this uh, magic, will it 
um, and oh, I don't know, something, turn you into a monster. Um, just kind of set those things up. You can refine them later and make them more complex, but just having that set up gives you enough meat, basically, to work with. Thank you. Other questions? Trust me, you do not want to hear the questions I have for these two. Ah, there we go. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so I was just wondering um, what made you both decide to write fantasy over other genres. I personally love fantasy, so I can see why, but it'd be great to hear your thoughts. So why did you guys want to write fantasy as opposed to other genres, just in case you can't hear that? Well, I mean, you wrote dystopian as well, didn't you? So that, that sit, does that sit in fantasy, would you say? I mean, or? it's a fantasy dystopia, which complicates yeah. the conversation. But wasn't the first book that you, you didn't publish, wasn't it sci-fi? Oh, arguably. Uh, what was the first book I published? It was rubbish, I can say that. Um, no, not published, sorry, it wasn't published. Um, it was the one I wrote before The Bone Season. Um, but yeah, no, I've always been drawn to speculative fiction. Um, dystopia, like I said, I enjoy that because of the stakes of it. I, I just find it very interesting to have characters push to, to, push to the extreme to the extent that dystopia allows. Um, Fantasy, I, I've just always written it, I suppose. It was, it, it's always what I've instinctually gone towards. Um, my, my parents moved house recently and they found some of my, um, my old attempts to write when I was young. And they were all fantasy, uh, such as Draken, Lord of the Kestrels, but Kestrels spelt with a C. Um, don't know why. <laughs> was that a mistake or was that intentional? I, I guess it was intentional because <laughs> I did not misspell were things. Were they still birds or were they like different Kestrels? They were winged women who were very clearly based on the sexy brides of Dracula and Van Helsing. <laughs> 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 who, now I think about it, may have been my lesbian awakening. <laughs> um, we'll talk about that off. Off mic. Oh, yes, we can. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I had that, and then when I was about nine, I wrote um, a novel called, well, a novel, it wasn't that long, but it was called Inferno, which was about dragons in Area 51, which I still think is kind of a good idea. Um, they were stationed at Area 51 because Area 51 was a portal to hell, and the humans, God knows why they had to be dragons to go to hell. It seems like the opposite of helpful, really, to have a flying thing. But so they would go down the giant portal uh, with the dragons and fight the demons. Um, and that was so clearly I always had that in my head. I do sometimes wonder if, if in a way it was when I was some of my Christian upbringing, actually. I'm not Christian anymore, but I remember I was fascinated by the book of Revelation when I was young probably to a slightly weird point, actually. Like, I, I would, like, doodle <laughs> images from the Book of Revelation. Very cool stuff. Um, but, yeah, so that was... Just I, little Sam drawing, like, a hundred eyes on some wings. Yeah. yeah, no, it was like, you know, the, the, the woman and the dragon sequencer for anyone who's, who's read the Bible in the room. Uh, there's, like, this scene where this dragon kind of is looming over this woman who's giving birth, and that, that was something I drew as a wow. child. I, would, I, I, was, I was clearly feeling a certain way. But that definitely sounds... Like, oh, um, it's a day, day of fall and night. night. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, li there's literally a scene in The Priory of the Orange Tree where Sabran describes a dream that she is having. And she says she dreams that she's giving birth to her daughter and a, a, the nameless one, the dragon, is waiting to eat the child. And that, that literally comes from the book of Revelation. So that was clearly in my head. But that is, a, that is a very fantastical book of the Bible in some ways, in terms of like the, the dramatic imagery. That, the, and I, I remember being very taken by that when I was young, um, just, just in, in general. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose I'm, I'm just literally theorizing about myself now because I'm not, I'm, not <laughs> I'm not entirely sure where my love of fantasy comes from. I, I like the, 
I like that fantasy can both reflect the real world in terms of, you know, it has the this flexibility where you can draw on history. For example, I do that a lot in the Roots of Chaos series. I basically reinterpret historical events in a fantasy setting in those books. Um, but also, you don't have to pay any attention to history if you don't want to. You can just invent an entirely new world. And I love that that versatility of fantasy where you can reflect the real world or you don't have to at all. You Literally, your imagination is the only limit in fantasy. And I think that's really thrilling and it's it's something that doesn't apply to all genres. So I think that's why I was, I was drawn to it from such a young age and remain so now. I just thought real life was really dull and, and fantasy was fun. Uh, <laughs> that's really the reason. I just, I loved it so much more. It was so much bigger and more interesting. You know, it wasn't, you know, going down to the chippy or, you know, Asda. It was just, it was, it was better. So and I love I still... going down the chippy. Okay, yeah, but like... <laughs> but like, it would be more fun okay, with but, the dragon. But imagine yes. if you could get chips at a tavern. That would be better. I can get chips at a tavern. No, because you <laughs> live... that kind of tavern. I've been to a tavern. Um, it's because you live in the sticks, of course. <laughs> the only place you can get chips is a tavern. But, it's, it's but that, yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> But it, it's that, that sense of something bigger and other, and you know, it takes real emotions and puts them on an epic stage, and I, I really love that. I just, I, I just really love it. Whenever I talk to people and they're like, oh, what should I write? I'm like, what do you love? Write that. I feel like that's a, a, a very, very simple but really true thing. If you love something, you maybe don't even need to know why you do. Um, but it's just where you need to be. So I would you know, consider writing outside of fantasy, but it is the thing that makes me the happiest by far. So I, I, I can't explain it beyond that. Might be religion as well, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do feel like there's a connection. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we have three minutes. If you can ask a question that they can each answer in 90 seconds. Hi, um, I'm a really big fan of um, queer fantasy, um, which is right a, a, I know, <laughs> um, which is a too small genre. Um, so I was just wondering if you had any recommendations for good queer fantasy books. I said 90-second question. <laughs> I'm no. going to say Traitor by Cormorant for you. Yes! Um, I'm also going to say The Witch King by Martha Wells. Okay. Um, can I think of anything else right now? No, you go. This is rough because I was doing an event recently in... Uh, I, I literally went to uh, Croatia and I was asked for sapphic fantasy recommendations and I kid <laughs> you not, I stood up, there was a whiteboard and I wrote about 40 books on the right uh, I would recommend The Final Strife by Sarah Elarithi. Uh, I would recommend, oh my god, I've forgotten the all unbroken. of them. Shit. The Unbroken. The Unbroken by C.L. Yeah. Clark. The, the Jazz Hands Road by Tasha Sarah. I don't know about that. What about This Is How You Lose the Time War? Yeah. I, 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 think, yeah, I liked that. It was, um, I think I loved it more than you did, maybe. I think I, I, think I anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that later. Um, oh my god, I've literally forgotten every book I've ever read. Um, Queen of Coin and Whispers by Helen Corcoran. Bitter Thorn by Cat Dunn. Bitter Thorn by Cat Dunn. Thank you very much for reminding me of my own <laughs> books I like. Um, <laughs> we oh always god. read the same books. Uh, I know. Um, um, uh, the True Queen by Zen Cho. Uh, the Red Scholar's Wake by Elliot. Hadia Elsevier's book, but I've forgotten what oh, it's uh, called. Oh, The Daughters of Isdihar. Thank yeah, you. I really yeah. enjoyed that. Um, there's actually quite a lot of really great sapphic fiction out there now. Yeah. I like the Freya Marsk trilogy. Um, it's but the sapphic stuff hits in the second book, true. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Didn't say sapphic, said queer. No, okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. The Witch King is queer, not sapphic. Well, it has sapphic content, but it is queer. It's queer norm. Mm -hmm. um, there's loads more. There's so many that I've forgotten them all. Basically, if you follow any of us on our respective social media, you will not really go a day without seeing us tweet or in Instagram. 
some queer book or another. I can like guarantee it, unless we're just offline entirely. What is the verb to Instagram? Yeah, I don't know. Question for the scholars. All right, so I think that is time. Um, thank you all so, so, so much for being here. Will you please give our authors a lovely round of applause? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.